Hi everyone, today is March 18th, 2022, and we are excited to announce our class of 2025. Starting with Bernardo Milanes Rodriguez, Carol Avila, Ejo Dakeme Okoji, Gagan Kuner, Isabello Lucho Bustamante, Jorge Carlos Suege, Maria Malave, and Somto Chukuchike Nueve. Congratulations and welcome to our family. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Rio Bravo Q Week. My name is Hector Ariasa, and I'm one of the faculty members of the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program. Today, during the following minutes, you will hear a conversation I had with Dr. Mariana Gomez. Some people call her Dr. Gomes. Uh, well, Dr. Gomes graduated from the Romulo Gallegos University in Venezuela, which is also my alma mater, and she completed her residency in internal medicine in St. Barnabas Hospital, which is affiliated with the Albert Einstein School of Medicine in the Bronx, New York. She then completed a fellowship in infectious diseases at Carillion Clinic, which is affiliated with Virginia Tech School of Medicine. Dr. Gomes currently works in Virginia. This is Rio Bravo Q Week, your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program from Bakersfield, California. Our program is affiliated with UCLA and it's sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista. Let us be your healthcare home. Welcome, Mariana. Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm excited to have this conversation today. Oh, well, let me tell you, Mariana, how I remember you. I remember that many years ago, during Carnival in Venezuela, we had this beauty pageant, and you were the winner. So that's how I remember you. You were the beauty queen of Carnival in my medical school. So I'm glad that you are here, and uh, I'm very happy to discuss this topic with you because you are not only a beautiful person, but also you are very smart. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Yeah, uh, my years of um, beauty contests are kind of uh, in the past now, <laughs> more focusing to medicine and, and family in general. Well, we're going to have to ask your husband about that because he might disagree with you about your beauty. But anyways, uh, thank you so much again. And, you know, we're going to be talking about latent B infection today. And um, we receive a lot of requests to screen people in our clinic as primary care providers. And I wanna hear your opinion about this. My first question is, who should we be screening for latent TB infection? Yeah, um, so Hector, this is a very important question. Uh, but before we go into that, I would like just to say a few words about uh, what is a latent TB infection and what is a, a tuberculosis infection. Um, so just general, I know you guys have this knowledge already, but uh, tuberculosis is caused by mycobacterium tuberculosis or, or MTB. And uh, not everyone infected with tuberculosis bacteria becomes sick. As a result, two TB related conditions exist. One would be the latent TB infection that we're gonna call LTBI from now on or TB infection. And you know, in most infected individuals, the mycobacterium tuberculosis infection is contained by the host defenses. And then the infection remains in a prolonged suppressed state that we call latency. 
However, this latent infection has the potential to develop into an active infection, and then we call it active disease, and this can happen at any time. So the going back to your question, who should be screened for latent TB? Um, so currently the CDC and the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force or USPSDF is recommending to test people who are at increased risk for TB infection. And this should be done during routine evaluations. The healthcare provider can identify the individuals who are at higher risk uh, and then test them for LTBI. So you can start with a simple uh, questionnaire. And this questionnaire is avail available at the CDC website. And it's a simple uh, TB risk assessment tool. Pretty much what it does, it groups in uh, patients in three different categories uh, based on the risk. And if the patient uh, applies to any of these three categories or qualify to any of these three, then it's a patient that is at high risk of having latent TB. So first would be that category of patients that have been temporary or permanently uh, residents uh, of at least one month in a country with a high tuberculosis rate. And this is any country other than the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and those in Northern Europe or Western Europe. Okay. okay. So the second category would be those that are um, currently immunosuppressed or are planned to go into some sort of immunosuppression. And this includes HIV patients, organ transplant recipient uh, patients, uh, or those that are receiving treatment with TNF alpha antagonists, chronic steroids. And it's very important to remember that it should be a dose more than 15 or the equivalent to 15 milligrams per day of prednisone for at least a month to be considered immunosuppressed. Okay. Okay. And other uh, or other immunosuppressive medications like chemotherapy or uh, so. And then the last category, which is um, one of the carries a high risk, is those that have a close contact during a lifetime with someone who has had infectious TB disease. Okay. And just to, to mention that uh, people that are low risk for LTBI is, should not be tested because these. Uh, results are usually inaccurate and it kind of uh, takes the resources away from other important activities. Okay, that's great. Let me just recap what you said. So the CDC recommends that you screen at least three categories of people. The first category will be uh, the patients whom, uh, who have lived in a country with high incidence and prevalence of TB infection and they have to be living there for at least one month. And also the second category would be the patients who are currently immunosuppressed or they are planning to be immunosuppressed in the near future. And the third group of people that need to be screened are those who have been in contact, close contact with patients infected with TB. So great, that's, that's a lot of people to screen and actually that's why we receive a lot of requests in our clinic uh, because we receive a lot of people from other countries and even from neighboring states. And California is very particular particular about that because we have to screen everyone who moves into the state, especially if they are planning to be going to college or to elementary school or high school. So now I'm going to have a silly question for you. And I want to hear your opinion about this. Why 
we should be screening people for latent TB infection? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, there are no silly questions and it's always a good <laughs> opportunity to, you know, g gain some more knowledge. Um, so first of all, there, uh, there is estimated like at least 30 million people in the United States have LTBI. So this is a big number. And, and it is important to know that these uh, patients with LTBI do not have signs or symptoms of TB disease. And they, uh, but keep in mind that they cannot transmit these to others, okay? So while not everyone with LTBI will develop TB disease, about five to 10% of infected people will develop TB infection over their, life, their lifetime if they are not treated for LTBI. So, and then it goes to another uh, significant statistics. 80% of US TB cases are caused by progression from untreated LTBI to TB disease. So then going back to your question, identifying and treating people with LTBI is essential for controlling and eliminating TB disease in the United States. And, it, and, and it's important to know as well that LTBI treatment is very effective for preventing tuberculosis infection or disease. Well, that's a great reason to be screening people for tuberculosis. I guess it was not a bad question after all. So thank you for answering that. So I was telling you about these forms that we get from school. Um, you know, people who move into California, even from neighboring states, here in, from here, from the United States, they need to be screened for tuberculosis. So they send a letter <clears throat> asking us to screen patients either with a questionnaire with a form with a basically asking like 10 questions or we can use um, a PPD screening or we can do a quant TB which is the blood test so I want to know how can we decide which method to use to screen these people yes okay so um, I'm not too familiar with the questionnaire entitles in, in California uh, but I don't know if it's like a risk assessment kind of questionnaire. Exactly. That's what it is. It's okay. a risk assessment. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. So that would be your first step. I don't think that you can use one or the other, but it would be like an, a, prime, a first step that you are going to do in your evaluation. Okay. Uh, and referring to the questionnaire. I wanted to talk a little bit about what the screening tests are that we have available currently. Are they the TST or the um, mantle tuberculosis skin test and the interferon gamma release assays or IGRA. Um, so currently these two tests are the ones that are recommended by the CDC um, uh, for a screening of latent TB inf infection, okay? Okay. So the TST is just pretty much a, a intradermal placement of purified protein derivative and is interpreted 48 to 72 hours later. Okay. And the interferon gamma or IGRA is a single venous blood sample and is processed in the laboratory eight to 30 hours after collection. So there are advantages for each of these two tests available um so what i uh, what we current currently or typically do is we reserve the the quantiferon for certain group of people um like for example people that are less likely to return for tst reading 
okay? We have to come back in 72 hours. Mm -hmm. Or people that have received the BCG vaccine, like in our country, and yeah. or people who are likely to be infected for uh, with M tuberculosis and are at a low to intermediate risk of progression to TB disease. Um, so another thing that is important to know, the current US guidelines recommend to use or suggest to use TST in, in kids or children younger than five years of age. Um, but I would recommend clinicians to just consult the American Academy of Pediatric Guidance to use of, uh, for the use of TB blood tests in children. Because you mentioned that you get these uh, kids from, from the school system. So it's very important to know um, that at this point, the TST is recommended in, in this uh, younger population. Okay? Mm -hmm. And there are some okay. cases where you, it is not recommended to use both tests. TST and quantification, but you could uh, use in certain circumstances, like for example, when you get a quantification that is reported as indeterminate, which yeah. pretty much it doesn't tell you if it is positive or negative, it's just mm -hmm. you don't know. So you could either repeat another quantification or do a TST test on that patient, and it will help you to decide. Yeah, that's great that you mentioned that indeterminate result because that's exactly what I got last week in a patient so i had to repeat it and fortunately the second test was negative so she was negative for latent tb infection it's good that you mentioned tst which we call usually in our clinic ppd uh, and also the igra which we call in our patient in our clinic quant tb so um, those are the approved um, tools to to screen for for latent tb infection and then you mentioned that for patients who are younger than five years old, it's better to screen with PPD. So for kids, you know, they have to be poked on the arm to, to get screened if they are younger than five. Anyways, so um, we get a lot of results that are positive uh, for PPD. So how can we decide what to do next? What do you recommend would be our next step? So, yes, um, that is very important. So you have a positive PPD, then there are um, some things that you have to take in consideration. First, what is the risk of the infection on this patient? And we went over the certain risks already at the beginning of our talk. And then you have to assess what is the risk of developing infection or tuberculosis infection on this patient. And based on these two factors, then you decide what do you do next, okay? Mm -hmm. So, and you can use one of those also uh, screening tools. Um, it is um, oh, TST in 3D that uh, where you kind of, uh, uh, Plug in the information, uh, the patient's information, the, the size of the PPD, uh, reading, and then um, there, there are a lot of factors that you have to introduce there. And they will tell you what is the lifetime risk factor for developing uh, infection in or tuberculosis infection. Um, also, I will uh, tell you the, the risk of associated hepatotoxicity. If you are started on uh, isoniazide, that we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Oh, yeah. um, so, well, then pretty much you put your patient on your risk factors and the risk factors for, uh, for developing, and then you move to the next step if this is a high-risk patient. And next step, uh, obviously, is to check if the patient has any symptoms suggestive of active infection. And, and also, uh, then you move into a chest x-ray 
to check for uh, findings su uh, suggestive of past infection or active infection as well. And then after all these steps are done, then uh, depending on your risk, then you can decide advice for further treatment for latent TB infection. Okay, I get it. So let's say a person who is PPD positive and that person has been in contact with a patient with active TB. So I guess that's a true positive, right? So, exactly. That puts you a, that puts a patient on a higher risk. Yeah. And this. Okay. So now let's talk about how we decide to treat the patient. Well, let me tell you in our clinic, or at least that's what I do in, uh, with my residents, we use the this website that is called tstin3d.com. So, and um, you input all the data pieces that are there, you know, the age of the patient, the comorbidities and the results that you have, and then all the risk factors that you can identify. And then that website gives you uh, an actual number, uh, a percentage of um, that this patient might have a real positive test, and it gives you the risk of developing tuberculosis in the next uh, year. And it also gives you the risk of hepatotoxicity if you decide to use INH in this patient. I think that's a great tool to decide um, if you need to treat the patient. And uh, so how do you, in your case, uh, as an infectious disease doctor, how do you decide to treat the patient? What, what kind of um, uh, thought processing do you have to, to make that decision? Yeah. Uh, so once that have you that you have run your um, screening test and you decide, well, this is I'm going to give you an example. Okay. So you have a patient that is, uh, let's say, somebody that is an immigrant from a high burden country. Okay. And it has a high risk from progressing to infection. Like, is the patient uh, has if the patient has diabetes or chronic renal failure, or IV drug use, or even HIV. That puts them on an even higher risk of that. HIV patients are a different category, um, but they should be all screened for, tuber uh, for uh, latent TB and be treated if they are uh, positive. Um, but let's go back to the diabetes and chronic renal failure. It's more like that more common population that you will receive in your uh, primary care setting. Mm -hmm. So then after that, okay, so this patient will benefit from a treatment for LTBI treatment. Then you have to evaluate what are the uh, potential for drug-to-drug uh, -drug interactions, the coexisting medical conditions, and drug susceptibility results of the presumed source case. I mean, that is just a, a little bit more um, in depth of what this is, uh, but pretty much is the patient is coming from an area where you have some resistant tuberculosis, then you may want to modify uh, the treatment and you may want to consult an infectious disease specialist at that point. Okay, Mariana. Well, I would like to know um, the timing. You know, a patient who had tuberculosis, let's say 40 years ago, is a patient still at risk of having reactivation of latent TB infection? Yeah, well, a patient that was had active TB and was treated, then that's a different category. If uh -huh. it's a patient that most of the patients that we get with latent TB, they don't know that they have been exposed in the past. So those are the patients that are on, on a high risk, especially if they have an underlying medical condition that puts them on a 
on on the, on the high risk. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. It, it typically what we tend to tell patients is on the first ten years after immigration to okay. um, load the, the burden tuberculosis country, then that's okay. when the risk is higher. Okay. So the risk is higher for reactivation within the first ten years after immigration. Good to know that. All right, Mariana. Well, let's talk about the recommended medications for the treatment of latent TB infection. So let's talk about it. What medications are recommended? Yeah, so uh, actually in 2020, the CDC uh, the, and the NTCA released an updated guidelines on the treatment of LTBI. Okay. Uh, so all regimens are effective, uh, but they tend to prefer the short course rifamycin-based regimens, okay? So rifamycin uh, meaning rifampin or rifapentin, okay? So it, it's also observed that short courses of LDBI treatments are effective and safe and then have a higher rate of completion uh, than other, other regimens that require six to nine months of INH monotherapy, okay? So if we go into a specific regimens, um, we have the INH in rifapentin regimen, which is once a week for three months, okay? okay. Uh, it's generally well tolerated, but I would say that some patients, depending on their age and their tolerability, that high dose that they receive once a week could be a little bit um, uh, too much at once, and they uh -huh. have uh, some complaints of intolerance, uh, mostly nausea, body aches, those kind of symptoms, because it's, it's a pretty uh, hefty dose. Yeah, you receive it seems very convenient. Once a week, it's very nice, right? It is. That's what it, some people, I, I will have to say in my experience, younger patients tolerate this regimen better than older patients with, with different comorbidities, okay? Okay. Um, so, and the, the, another regimen that is very well tolerated in general, I do have to say, is a, a refamping for four months. Uh, but they have, this have to be taken daily, Okay. Okay. Then you go ahead and you can also do isoniazid or INH plus rifampin. And this is also for three months and it's a daily regimen. And then you move on into the uh, INH only for six to nine months. Oh, which, okay. Yes. And so uh, mostly using patients that have a lot of interactions uh, with the other medications, mostly rifampin can cause a lot of drug to drug interactions. Uh -huh. Yeah. That's great. So uh, I guess that's kind of easy to remember well you have inh plus rifapentin for three months that one is a weekly dose then you have rifampin alone for four months and you have inh plus rifampin for three months right and now that you mentioned rifampin mariana that reminds me of an episode that i had in medical school i was working with maria my friend in the hospital in san juan de los morros and we had a patient with meningococcemia. So it was very dramatic. The patient was very sick. We all got exposed to meningococcus. And um, so everybody who got exposed received a dose of rifampin the same night. And then we went to bed or we went to rest. And then in the morning when we were going to the bathroom, everybody was um, concerned, you know, because our pee was orange and red. So that's one of the side effects of rifampin, right? 
It is. And I, I usually tell my patients because they get concerned that, uh, oh, well, their urine is, is they think it's blood. Uh, I had a patient recently telling me that it actually stains the the um, the bathroom toilet. Uh-huh. It stains it, so I didn't know that. Um, but yeah, all the patient's secretions are going to turn yellow or orange. Actually, yeah, even and the it can, tears, right? Yes, yeah. yeah, it can stain your contact lenses, and it can stain dentures. <laughs> so, oh wow! Well, yes, yeah, so something really worth to keep in mind, and even the toilet. Well, now let's talk briefly about INH. So INH has a risk of hepatotoxicity. Yeah, I mean, uh, so you can have two things. One is an elevated uh, serum liver enzyme concentrations that uh, can happen. And it usually kind of improve on its own, even when the patient is maintained on the therapy, okay? And it's completely asymptomatic. And patients can have, it can happen up to 10 to 20% of the patients that take INH. Okay. Um, then, but you can follow, you can have also clinical hepatitis, but this occurs in less than one percent of patients. Okay? okay. And is most common uh, commonly associated uh, when you are taking another hepatotoxic drug. Okay. That's excellent that you mentioned that, because uh, sometimes we tend to think that we have to stop. Uh, INH, when we see transaminitis right away. Exactly. I mean, uh, it is generally recommended that uh, to withhold the INH if the level of transaminase exceeds three times the upper limit of normal. Okay. If the patient has symptoms, okay? okay? But if the patient doesn't have any symptoms, then you can even wait uh, till five times the upper limit of normal. That's the okay. recommendations. But I, I, to be honest, if I have a patient that have a three-time ele- elevated liver en- enzymes uh, from the upper limit, uh, I would probably uh, hold INH. Well, thanks for sharing that information. It's good to know that we don't have to stop INH right away if we see transaminitis, unless the transaminitis are three or five times above the normal value. So that's good to know. Well, Mariana, I think we covered everything we were planning to cover. And I just want to tell you that I feel very proud of you. So you have gained a lot of knowledge and you are doing great things in your clinic. And uh, I'm very proud because you are from my alma mater. So, and I met you in medical school and now you are being a successful infectious disease specialist so thank you so much for accepting our invitation and i hope to have you again sometime soon in the future yes thank you so much for inviting me i really enjoy this and and likewise i'm also very proud of you you uh, and all the activities that you do in your community and with your residents and in your program and i think this is great please feel free anytime Now we conclude our episode number 87, Latent TB Infection. Dr. Gomez taught us how to screen and treat latent TB infections. Remember to screen only those who are at risk of a TB infection. Once you get a positive screen test, select the patients who will receive treatment of LTBI to prevent reactivation of the TB infection. You have at least four regimens to treat LTBI. The regimens that include rifamycin are recommended by the CDC. Even without trying, every night you go to bed being a little wiser. Thanks for listening to Rio Bravo Q Week. If you have any feedback about this podcast, please contact us by email at riobravoqweek at clinicaseravista.org or visit our website, riobravofmrp.org backslash qweek. 
This podcast was created for educational purposes only. Please visit your primary care physician for additional medical advice. This week, we thank Hector Ariaza and Mariana Gomez. Audio by Siraj Amruthia. See you next week.